Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, we are continuing our study through 1 John. We are in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, 3 through 17. If anyone needs a Bible, just raise your hand and we'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 17 this morning. I'd been up here sooner, but Joey and Nick prevented me from coming up, so. Just, yeah, uh huh. Yeah. They said, if I don't come up, then they won't be convicted of their sin. And so I said, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, just know it hits me first before it hits you guys, so. 1 John chapter 2, we're going to read it, verse 3 through 17. John writes, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Now he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, But an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. And again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is the light in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him from who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The title of my message this morning is proof that you know that you know. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, opportunity that we have, Lord, to gather together, to open up your word, and to know, Lord God, that you are here, ready to instruct us, to give us not only information, but application in our lives that would change us and draw us closer to you in our relationship with you. Lord, we pray if there's anyone here this morning that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, we pray that they would see their need for you and be born again today. Thank you for our time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Often in commercials, they like to display their product. And, and I talked to Jeremy before first service that, that he used to actually do this. You take your product and you're going to make it look really, really good on TV. Now, in order to do that, they have to make some weird changes to it. But let me give you a few examples. Not real good quality, but you can see it. How about some French fries? Ad looks pretty good. They're all straight in there, and they look just great and delicious. I want some French fries. Here's the real thing. (laughs) Kind of messed up a little bit. 
How about a cereal ad? Man, look how perfect that is. Everything in its right place. Now, now I saw a video that says they actually put Jello on the bottom, then they put Elmer's glue on top, then they lay the strawberries and the and the cereal on top of that. So that's you have cereal. Here's the real thing. Yeah, it looks just like that. One more hamburgers. Oh man, that looks great. You know, they they put the cheese and they heat it up and they melt it down and then they put the burger, then more cheese and heat that up. Then they put lettuce in a toothpick and tomato in a toothpick and then they put a a, a wedge underneath it to prop it all up so it all stays up. That's awesome. And here's what you get. So, I mean, how do you know the real from the fake? Well, you have to have proof. You have to have that evidence. You have to hold it in your hands and go, hey, this is the real thing. I know that it is because I have it here. You know, in the same way in our world of smartphones and tablets and instant internet access, there are many things that we can know. If someone asks the question, how tall is the St. Louis Arch, the the Gateway Arch, a person with a 5G connection and an iPhone that doesn't have T-Mobile can ask Siri... (laughs) St. Louis Arch. And they'll get almost an instantaneous response. The St. Louis Arch, otherwise known as the Gateway Arch, is 630 feet tall and opened on October 28, 1965. Did that answer your question? And you, oh, that's it. But if you're sitting next to a 75-year-old retired construction worker who spent two years of his life building the St. Louis Arch in his 20s, we would not only get the right information, but we would get it with passion. And we would get it with excitement. I was there, and this is how we did it, and this is how tall it is. And let me tell you the story about that. Why? Because he knows. He knows that he knows because he was there. He helped build it. Now remember, John's writing this epistle to uh, these people known as the the Gnostics. They believed in, in Gnosticism. And Gnostics were those who thought that they knew thought that they were in the know, that they had the deeper things of God down, and that uh, they, you know, they belonged to the deeper life club, and they thought they had this special knowledge that no one else had. In fact, the word Gnostic means to know. They were a heresy group, (laughs) heretical group, that denied the deity of Jesus Christ. They thought they knew more about God than anyone else. And if you didn't agree with them, they would put you down. But John here, we saw in chapter 1, says, Listen, you think you know, but I truly know. I was there. I walked with Jesus. I spoke with Jesus. Firsthand, uh, the teachings of Jesus. Uh, You know, I stood there at the cross where he looked at me and said, John, behold your mother. I heard him speak to us after his resurrection. I know. John says, remember, I, you know, John knows a thing or two because he's, he's seen a thing or two. And that's why John begins the way he does in verse 3 by saying, Now by this we know that we know him. He's giving proof. Hey, by this, these things that I'm going to lay out for you, we know that we know him. If you're taking notes, it'll be three things. Number one, if we truly know Christ, we will have number one, a walk of obedience. Number two, a walk of love. And number three, a walk of holiness. See, John is speaking to the Christian about the evidence of truly being born again. And walking in the light of the Lord. And he says we will have, point number one, a walk of obedience. Look at verse 3 again. John says, now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Now I believe that John is purposely using a play on words. You know, 
Because the Gnostics thought they were in the know. But John says, well, we know that we know him. And evidence that we know him says, my life has been converted. I've been born again. As a result, I will keep his commandments. That word keep there in the Greek is the word tariho, which literally means to guard or to stand watch over, like a person standing guard or watch over a precious treasure. Carefully guard it, carefully watch over it, because it's precious to him. And the term commandments here, don't get confused with the Ten Commandments. Rather, it's a term for the, for the Word of God, all of the Word of God. So the idea here is that you can know that you're a Christian because the commandments, the Word of God, and the will of God is something that is very precious to you. It's to be guarded and watched over carefully by the person who says that he or she is a Christian. Listen, being a Christian isn't following a bunch of do's and don'ts and a bunch of regulations and, and rules. No, being a Christian begins with the desire to want to please God and by having a holy fear of displeasing God. Listen to what Paul wrote in first, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. That's my aim, Paul says, my desire that whatever I do, I want to make sure my life is pleasing to God. See, that's more than just keeping a list of rules and, and legal, legalistic do's and don'ts. It begins with a desire. It begins with a, a condition of the heart, an attitude of the heart. You know, it's kind of like when you come across two people at a restaurant, you know, maybe it's a Mexican restaurant, and they got the chips on the table, and they're in love, and they're looking at each other, and, 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 and he says, to her, oh, no, you take the, the last chip. And she says, oh, no, you take the last chip. Oh, no, you take the last Oh, no, I couldn't, dear. I love you so You take the last chip. I just want to lean over and say, just take the dumb chip, will you? One of you, I don't care. You know, because they love each other. They want to please each other. The guy doesn't get work, off work on Friday and go, you know, what a drag. It's Friday night and I guess i gotta got to take a shower and get dressed and go on this date and comb my hair and get all... What a bummer. No, they don't do that. They're excited. It's something he wants to do. He can't wait to be with her. He's thinking about how to please her. It's not, oh, i got to do this, i got to do that. No, I get to do this. I have this opportunity to do that. John says that's evidence in your life that you've truly been converted, that it's a real deal because your heart is, I want to please you, Lord. I don't want to do anything that's going to displease you. Now, you know, again, it's not keeping rules and regulations. Certainly we can't keep them to be saved. No one can. It's not by works that we're saved, but we keep them, again, because we're saved. And then John goes on in verse 4. He says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I love this guy. 90 to 100 years old, he just lays it out there on the line. He doesn't really care if you go, oh, you, you hurt my feelings. You know, this would be considered a mean tweet probably right there. And then, I, I, I don't know. But John says, hey, if you say you love Jesus, but your walk doesn't match your talk, my friend, you are a liar. I said, preach it, John. And he goes on in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So what is the evidence in a person's life that they've been born again, that they truly know him, that they, personally, they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Is The answer is a walk of obedience. You know, when someone says with their mouth that I know him, 
But with their life, they're living in, in outright disobedience to the Lord. It's evidence that they truly don't know the Lord. When John says that we know that we are in and he's saying that, that you experience fullness of that fellowship in your relationship with Jesus when you walk in obedience. See, obedience is a prerequisite to fellowship. You can't have fellowship without obedience. Disobedience interrupts that, that experience of fellowship. And John here is making it clear obedience is the mark of those that know him. Now, I will say this. Disobedient saints will have more doubts about their salvation than obedient ones. And maybe they should. Uh, you know, have you ever been asked, well, is it okay as a Christian to do this or to do that? And they're probably asking you this because they're not sure if they should be doing what they're doing. They're not sure if it's right. What they're doing. Maybe there's a little bit of a conviction in their hearts and they're kind of living on the edge. Well, see, John answers that question very clearly in verse 6 when he says, He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Is what you're doing something that Jesus would do or something that Jesus would never do? See, the walk of the believer should model that of our Savior. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we can walk on water like Jesus did. Uh, you know, we, we can't do that. But, but our walk with Jesus it's a walk, when you look at Jesus, he, he daily walked in compliance to the will of his Father. He always did what his Father's will was. Walk as Jesus walked, John says. So the point is, obedience proves that you have a relationship with God. Jesus put it this way in John fifteen fourteen: You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Quite simply, you demonstrate that you have a relationship or friendship with Jesus by obeying him. And if you don't obey him, then you really don't have that right to, to call yourself his friend. True friends of Jesus will obey him. You'll be friends. Uh, here's an example. Let me give you another one. Let's say a person may say that they're your close friend. But you find out they're always talking behind your back. They're always saying, you know, cutting things about you, telling people, other people, you know, uh, what kind of person you are and how they, you know, your attitude towards you. And, and you confront them. You say, excuse me, um, are you my friend? Yeah, I'm your friend. Well, if you say you're my friend, then why are you walking around talking behind my back and saying things that, that aren't true? And, and this person said this. And it's, it, I mean, are you really doing that? Yeah, I am. Sorry about that. Uh, but I love you, man. I'm sorry. Can we still, can you forgive me? <laughs> and then the next day they show up with some gift for you and, and say, hey, I really want to be your friend. Thanks. Okay. And you forgive them. Then the next day you find out they're talking about you again. Telling lies about you. You confront them. What's going on? I, I thought you, you know, I, I, I thought we were friends. I don't know what came over me. I love you so much. And they give you another gift. I do this for a couple of days in a row. After a while, you're going to say, listen, buddy, I don't want your gifts. I want you to stop talking about me. I want your friendship. I want your loyalty. But see, a lot of us are like that with God. Oh, yeah, I'm a friend of God. Jesus Christ is my best friend. Really? Then obey him. But, but a lot of us don't. We'll break his commandments over and over again with intent. And then periodically we'll go to God and say, well, I'm sorry, I've done this horrible thing. Listen, I'll make up for it. I'll go to church an extra day next week. I'll give a little more of my offering next time around, an extra financial gift. You know what God says? I don't want your large financial gifts. I don't want you uh, to get, come to church an extra day. I just want you to obey me. I love the story in the Old Testament of, of Saul and, and Samuel. Saul was rejected by the Lord because of his constant wickedness. 
He was instructed by the Lord to go into battle against his enemies and destroy them completely along with their livestock. But as he was defeating the enemy on the battlefield, he saw some of that livestock, the sheep and the cattle, and said, oh man, they, they look good. So he decided to keep them for himself. So he gave the order, take those back to my home. And they did. Well, afterwards, Saul was out in his camp when the prophet Samuel comes walking up and, and Saul goes out to greet him. Samuel, good to see you, brother. How are you? Bless the name of the Lord. Samuel says, I got a question for you, Saul. Yeah, what is it? Did you do all that the Lord commanded you to do? Yep, I destroyed all the enemies of the Lord. I did just as you said. And Samuel says, why do I hear that bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the cattle in the background? Samuel says, what sheep? It's me. What cows? No, no cows. Actually, Saul says, well, well, thank you for bringing that to my attention. You see, I save those because uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna sacrifice them to God. Uh, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. But, you know, I was gonna mention to you that next. I love what Samuel says to Saul in First Samuel fifteen twenty-two. Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams." Essentially, he was saying, first and foremost, God wants your obedience. Then he wants your worship and your praise and your giving and your service. See, all all those things are fine in their place, but obedience must come first and foremost. And this brings us to our second point. You want to have proof that you know the Lord. First, you'll have a walk of obedience. Secondly, you'll have a walk of love. Look at verses 7 through 11. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word, which you heard from the beginning. And again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So we're told, number one, walk in obedience. Number two, walk in love. They go hand in hand. Now remember, the Gnostics said, proof that you you know God is you must attain to spiritual heights through special rituals and rites and our way of knowledge. And anyone who disagrees, they look down upon you. They, They put you down. You are less of a person. And John is saying, no, listen, he who loves his brother is actual proof that he or she is a believer. See, John's point is this. All of you guys who claim to know God, you haven't a clue. Because when I look at your life, you're not only disobedient to the word of God, but you have this attitude that excludes other people. You're somehow better than everybody else. And certainly this is not showing the love of Christ. Jesus put it this way in John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now I think at times this can be one of the hardest things to do. Because when we're asked, do you love the Lord? Oh yeah, I love the Lord. It's great, he's great. Why? Because he is so lovable. What's not to love about our God? Then that's what do you love your brothers and sisters? Well, that's a little bit tougher. (laughs) Because we all have to admit, we're not always that lovable ourselves. 
One person said the church is much like Noah's Ark. Were it not for the storm on the outside, we couldn't stand the stench on the inside. Or I like this saying, to live above with saints we love, oh, that'll be glory, but to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. I like J. Vernon McGee's story when he was attending seminary. He writes this, I roomed with a fellow who had some of the meanest habits I'd ever seen in a Christian. He would start singing at night after I went to bed and was asleep. He wouldn't sing all day long, but at 11 o'clock at night he was ready to tune up. He had a lot of mean habits like that. So one day I told him, you know, you are the greatest proof to me that I'm a child of God. He asked, what do you mean? I replied, you're the most nauseating, the most sickening Christian that I've ever met. But I want you to know something. I love you. J. Vernon McGee goes on. He says, he looked right at me and said, I want you to know that you're the most abominable Christian I've ever met. And I want you to also know that you're the hardest person in the world to love. But I love you. (laughs) You see, the point is that there are going to be those people with different habits and different mannerisms that are just, they're just going to bug you. It doesn't mean that there won't be some believers who have certain habits that you don't really approve of. That's understandable. But to hate them, John says, to hate them proves that you're living in darkness. Hatred of a fellow believer is evidence that a person is not in the light. I mean, John has given us this tremendous statement here. Look at verse 11. He who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He says, if you claim to be a believer, but in reality you're walking around with this hatred in your heart, then you've allowed that hatred to blind you and you truly are not walking with the Lord. So I have to ask you, do you really know the Lord, he says? You see, if anything, the blinding effect of hatred in someone's heart is the clearest evidence that they are not where they should be. If you're not walking in love, then that's a pretty good indication something is wrong with your relationship with the Savior. Because you can't be right with God and wrong with others. The same way, if you're married, you cannot be right with God and wrong with your spouse. You can't have a close relationship with God and hate your wife or hate your husband. You can't hate anybody. And if you find yourself in that position, confess and ask God to give you mercy and forgiveness. If there's anyone in your life in which you're hating or have bitterness in your heart towards you, you ought to say, God, soften my heart and forgive me. Because it will lead to a blinding darkness. John says you're walking in darkness. You're certainly not going to experience the joy that we talked about in chapter 1. You certainly are sinning, as we talked about in chapter 1, verse 8. And you certainly need to confess your sins, as we talked about in chapter 1, verse 9. One more thing about love I want to mention. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 13, verse 7, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. What that means is that love gives people the benefit of the doubt, and that unless I have knowledge to the contrary, I trust you in what you're saying, and I trust your motives. If you show up on church Sunday morning and tell me you're visiting from Southern California, having come up to see your parents, I have no reason to not believe you. On the other hand, if you tell me you're on a mission from Mars to recruit volunteers to colonize one of the moons of Mars, I think not. Yeah, love believes all things, but love is, is not gullible. I bring this up because there was a post from a pastor friend of mine that I thought said it so well, and he, I want to read it to you. He writes this, quote, There is a serious crisis in the body of Christ 
We no longer believe all things. No, we haven't grown gullible, but there are widening cracks of judgment and suspicion. There's a crisis of love and a growth in questioning each one's, each other's motives constantly. Let me say pastors today are faced with all sorts of decisions that are leading people to question their motives. For example, if we open our churches, we are judged and people will leave the church. If we don't open our churches, we are judged and people will leave the church. If we open our churches and require masks, some are offended and will leave the church. If we open our churches and don't require masks, some are offended and will leave the church. If we meet outside, we are judged. If we meet inside, we are judged. If we remain live stream only, we are judged. If we are pro-vaccinations, we are judged. If we are anti-vaccinations, we are judged. If we believe it's a personal decision each person needs to make for themselves, we are judged. And there are those who make their opinions known to the pastor, and this isn't a burdensome thing in and of itself unless the opinion is accompanied by an expectation of compliance and the assurance of judgment, if not. And then he writes this. Please give your pastors a break. We are doing the best we can. We don't get up in the morning and tell ourselves that we're going to make the worst decisions possible to get the most amount of people ticked off at us. He says, we are accused of not having enough faith of being unloving or not caring for the community. And on it goes. This is a grievous and does not reflect the heart of God. And he closes with 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Now, with that said, I have to say that I, I am blessed by the love and the prayers and the support and the understanding of this church body through the difficult times that we're living in. You guys are the best, and, and it, we are the, you guys are the best congregation around. And I'll also add that we will never shut this church down again because of some pandemic. <laughs> but our hearts towards one another and the differing views that we all have, we must remember love. Loving one another. A love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love believes the best. And that's what John goes on. Again, look at verse 10 and 11. He says, He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This brings us to our third and final point. Number one, a walk of obedience. Number two, a walk of love. Number three, prove that we truly know that we know Christ. We will have a walk of holiness. Jonathan Edwards once said this, I'm resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I like that. We don't know when the Lord's going to return. It could be the last hour. I like what Leonard Ravenhill, he put it this way, the greatest miracle that God can do today is to take an unholy man out of an unholy world and make him holy, then put him back into that unholy world and keep him holy in it. Look at verses 12 through 14. John writes, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven, you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. John basically lays out three groups that he's writing here about. You might say three stages of holiness. To the little children, verse 12, to the fathers, verse 13, and to the young men, verse 14. Most likely, 
as I said, John is referring to their level of maturity in, in the Christian life, not actual age. So the little children would be the young believers. You, you, you realize you're saved. Your sin has been forgiven. The father is the mature saint. You've been saved for a while. You're walking in faith. And the young men, the, the in-between, those that have been saved for some time, but you're still kind of growing, but you figured out how to overcome temptation, resist temptation. And he, he writes about them and not only speaks of them once, but twice. And he mentions some of the things that, that are true about them. To the little children, their sins are forgiven for his namesake, he says. I mean, think about that when you were first a Christian. I mean, you look back some of the sweetest memories as a young man of just knowing my sins were forgiven, the joy that comes from that. You know, in fact, for the first couple of years, you just walk around and I go, man, I'm, I'm saved. No more guilt, no more shame, no more sin. Oh, God, is so good, man. The, the light has come. My sins are gone. Just knowing your sins are forgiven. John says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for, uh, you for your namesake. Verse 12. Now, granted, as you walk with the Lord for some years, you may have been a Christian a little longer than you were. You weren't a Christian. I got saved when I first turned 21, and I've been a Christian for almost double that now come October. But, but you almost forget what it was like before you got saved. Of course, I really don't want to remember what it was like before I got saved, but my sins. But, but I'm thankful that God has forgiven me. And I'm grateful that God has forgiven me. But, you know, there's that, that fresh newness or excitement that sometimes wears off. And I think sometimes people freak out when that happens. They think that they're always going to have this, 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 this joy and this excitement and it's always going to have this bubbly feeling all the time and all of a sudden, you know, they don't have it. They go, what's going on? What, what's happened in my life? Do, do, I, do I still know the Lord? And, and, but see, time changes things. And you start to grow in your relationship with the Lord. And you begin to, to grow strong and you start overcoming temptation, as the wicked one says, John says to the young men, learning to resist temptation and then eventually maturing to the point that you're now walking by faith and not by sight, walking because you believe, not by the feelings that you have. You know, you might have been a Christian for a long time and you may feel like, hey, I just don't feel the presence of the Lord like I used to. Those are the times especially you need to start walking by faith and not by sight. You may not always feel, feel the presence of the Lord, but, but keep plugging along. The Lord has promised not to leave you, not to forsake you, whether you feel Him or not. Someone put it this way, never doubt in the darkness what God has told you in the light. Or Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I know you are with me. Not because I have some feeling, the goosebumps, oh, I feel His presence. No. You are with me. I have to believe by faith. You know, the, the mature believer when facing valleys of deep darkness, where you say, Lord, I can't see you. You've learned to say, Lord, I am not going to fear because I know you are with me. Let me tell you, this world today, it's marketing fear. It wants us to not walk in faith, but to walk in fear. I read a recent article by Jeff Childers called what the church needs to know about COVID-19. He writes this, There is a demonic spirit of fear suffocating the earth. The spirit of fear is destroying relationships and tearing the church apart. But Christians in particular are not supposed to fear. He then asks, Where is all this fear coming from? And then he posts this image from a recent Newsweek cover magazine. It's the Doomsday Variant. Doomsday, it asks, How worried should we be? How worried, he writes, not should we be worried. Worry is presumed. 
But when you read the article, admit there is no doomsday variant. It just says that experts can't rule it out. It's mere speculation that might have been helpful to mention on the cover, don't you think, he says. And he goes on. Anyway, I disagree. There is a doomsday variant. The doomsday variant is fear. The spirit of fear has caused a tsunami of worldwide terror and destruction. And then he quotes a study that was done that was just published. Of 5 million COVID-19 patients, he says, guess what is tied now for first place as the most likely predictor of mortality once someone goes into the hospital? Fear. Fear. Number one used to be obesity, no surprise there, but fear has crept up the charts and is now tied for number one with obesity. Fear and anxiety-related disorders, end quote. The world today is marketing fear in order to bring about its global agenda. But here's the thing. A spirit of fear is a spiritual problem. It's not a medical problem. It's not a biological problem. It's not a political problem. And it's not a scientific problem. It is a spiritual problem. And spiritual problems must be dealt with with the Word of God. Period. How do you handle fear? By walking in faith and believing what God's Word says. David wrote in Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? How about anxiety? People are anxious. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, 4 through 7, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself told us not to fear, ever. Luke 12, 32, do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus' words. Matthew 20, 10, 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus' words. Folks, we must not let the world breathe fear into our lives. Instead, we're to look to the Lord and find strength and comfort and peace. Walk in faith, believing the promises of God. Again, John is writing to the father, the young, the children, verse 13, and he reverses the order in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He says, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of, word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. So the young men, the, the, you know, the, this would include the young women as well, you know, in between believers there, uh, you know, at some point in your life, you begin to experience victory over sin, is what he's saying. You know, the first initial rush of, oh, wow, all my sins are forgiven, but then you stumble from time to time. Then you start finding out that the Lord is your strength, that you can resist temptation, that no temptation that's taken you, but it's such a common a man. But God will not allow you to be tempted above what you were able, but a way to escape it. And you start to escape these temptations, and you overcome the wicked one, and you start really living a life of holiness. That's what John is saying here. And he's speaking to these young men. How is it that they overcome the wicked one? Verse 14, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you. You're going to be strong because you're in the Word of God. I like what David wrote in Psalm 119.9. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your Word. Being strong in the Word of God, abiding in the Lord, you're going to grow from a little child to a spiritually mature adult. Read the Word, study the Word, know the Word, feed on the Word, walk by faith as it's based on the Word. That produces maturity, that produces holiness. 
Uh, you, you, you think biblically. You ground yourself in the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. You're able to overcome the wicked one. You're able to see what's going on in the world and going, nope, that's not right. Nope, that doesn't line up with Scripture. Nope, not going to go there. So walk in obedience, walk in love, walk in holiness. How do I walk in holiness? By not loving the, the, the world. Look at these final two verses, verse 15 through 17. Or three verses. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away. We Don't we know it? And the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Classic verse here. John says, do not love the world. Now, as I look around the world, I don't think that's much of a problem. <laughs> I'm not liking what I see in the world uh, is heading. But this Greek word here for, for do not love the world, it's an imperative. It's, it means it's a, it's a compa- uh, command. It's not an option. God's word commanded, we do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, when John says do not love the world, uh, he means the evil world system apart from God. He's not talking about the physical world. Oh, I just love the trees. No, you can't love the trees because God said don't love the world or the things that are in it. I love my dog. No, you can't love your dog. That's in the world. Love not the world and the things that are in it. Shut up, okay? That's not what he's saying. As Christians, we should be able to enjoy all the things that God has blessed us with. But again, the word for world there means the evil world system, which we know Satan is the prince and power over. There's so much we can say about that, but right now from our text, it's clearly described. He says, first of all, you can't love the world and love God. That is, you can't love the worldly way of doing things, the world's evil system, and still maintain this relationship with God. So you say, well, what is the world? Verse 16 tells us, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All those things are in contrast to your relationship with God. Three radical categories that we've been tempted with since the beginning of our existence. Someone said Satan only has three strings on his guitar, only three tunes he can pluck, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But you can really break these down really just into three categories. The lust of the flesh is our passions, the lust of the eyes is our possessions, and the pride of life is our position. Now, it goes without saying, but we know that all three of these sins can be and has been committed by young, middle-aged, or, or old people, you know. But we all should resist them. Watch out for the lust of the flesh. Be careful uh, that your passions are subjected to the Word of God. If you're a young, single person, your sex life is to be submitted to the Word of God. If you're a, a, a just married person, your sex life is to be submitted to the Word of God. If you're an old married person... <laughs> Your sex life needs to be submitted to the Word of God, obedient to the Word of God. You're not to yield yourself to the lust of the flesh and violate God's Word. But there are other areas for the lust of the flesh that we could call sin. We can gluttony is a sin, you know, laziness, drunkenness, covetousness. Those are, are, are lusts that we can all have. How about lust of the eyes? That, that would be covetousness. David said, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes in Psalm 101 verse 3. We live in such a materialistic world. And many times people will forget God just, just for the, some possession. I, I can't go to church. I've got to work over because I really want to get you fill in the blank. How about the pride of life? Be careful that your heart doesn't get full of pride. Psalm 138, 6. 
Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. It's a walk in humility. Don't get caught up in these things. Why? John tells us in verse 17, he says, because this world, the world is passing away, and the lust of it, it he who does the will of God, abides forever. What an awesome promise. I like that. Uh, the D.L. Moody, uh, 1 John 2.17, is, is inscribed on the headstone of his grave. That was his life verse. And he lived it. He was a man totally sold out for God. D.L. Moody heard it once say, someone say, the world is yet to see what can happen when somebody totally surrenders to God. And he said, by the grace of God, I will be that man. He knew the world was passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. Do you want to have proof that you know that you know the Lord? You can. John says it's the one who does the will of God that will abide forever. What is the will of God? That none should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's will is that you may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then upon knowing him, as proof that we know him, we walk in obedience, walk in love, walk in holiness. As we close and enter a time of communion, I think there's no greater time than for us to examine our lives in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus did upon the cross, to say, Lord, am I walking in love? Am I walking in obedience? Am I walking in holiness? Maybe some of those areas in our lives where God has spoken to you and you go, man, I'm really not. I kind of blew it here, Lord. Lord, help me to be that man or that woman that you've called me to be. And we confess it to the Lord. And we receive that forgiveness as we confess it to him. It's, it's a good time to get our hearts right with God, especially in times in which we're living in. Next week we'll look at verse 18, which I think will be a, a, a perfect time to talk about the Antichrist and many Antichrists in the world right after the prophecy uh, conference there. But uh, with that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time of communion. Thank you, Lord, that we can gather together as a church, a body of believers, Lord, in our desires that we do walk in obedience to you and to your word and that, that we, we, Lord, we do these things because we want to please you. We don't want to do the things that are displeasing to you, Lord. So help us to walk in obedience. Father, help us to walk in love. Lord, it's so easy for us to get caught up in our views and, our, and we can then have these attitudes, Lord, and, and before we know it, we're not walking in love, but we're judging and, and putting people down. Lord, that's not your heart. We want to walk as you walk, Lord. So help us to do that, Lord. And finally, help us to, to walk in holiness. Not give in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, but to walk as you walk, Jesus. Always doing the will of the Father. And Lord, we just thank you for this time of communion where we can examine our hearts. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's yet to surrender their lives to you. Maybe they're not born again at all. They have no power to resist temptation or sin. They're in that first stage, Lord, where they need to come to you and know that their sin can be forgiven. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to their heart, you'd touch them, and they'd come to know you this morning and receive communion with us. Help us all, Lord, as believers, just to spend this time just getting our hearts right with you and remembering the awesome work of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.